morning I invite you to consider as our scripture passage the first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, and then the complementary passage that we find in the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verses 12 through 31. That's going to be our scripture passage, our scripture reading this morning. I'll be reading from the English Standard Translation, and so follow me if you desire from your electronic Bible on your phone uh, or your old-fashioned hard-covered Bible. But um, either way, it's good for you to have the scriptures in front of you as we consider it this morning. Genesis chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Isaiah chapter 40, beginning with verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? And taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are as accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely are they sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the ground when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like them, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, no one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known... Have you not heard? 
The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let's pray. Lord God, may your Holy Spirit work in our hearing of the word, uh, the deepest of understanding, that we might gain from Scripture your truth concerning yourself and then how that relates to and applies to us in our lives. Enable us, we pray, to be those who not only hear the word, but respond in faith and obedience. We would ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin with a story, or the story that we find in the last chapter of the book of Luke. It's the story that's often called the road to Emmaus story. It happens on the resurrection day. Uh, the disciples have heard the testimony from the women that uh, they went to anoint Jesus with uh, burial spices, and behold, uh, the stone has rolled away, the tomb is empty, they have an encounter with angels, they've been told that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And even Mary Magdalene, a personal encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. They bring this message back to the disciples, the disciples themselves, Peter and John, run to the tomb. They see the tomb empty. But instead of faith, they're confounded. Instead of believing, they really do not understand what is taking place. Some other disciples who were closely connected to the eleven uh, then decide to travel from Jerusalem back to Emmaus, about a seven miles journey. While they're on their way, deeply puzzled and deeply discouraged over all the news and all the things that have happened in the past few days, Jesus comes alongside them and questions them why they're so downcast. And they basically say to Jesus, are you the only one in all the area around Jerusalem who hasn't understood or known and seen and, and, and participated in what's happened in the last three days? The one that we had the hope was going to be the Messiah of Israel has been crucified, he's been buried, it's the third day now, and the women have come back saying that Something strange has happened. The tomb is empty. They say Jesus has been risen. But these disciples are still in a state of being confused and a state of unbelief. So in Luke 24, beginning at verse 25 and 27 to 27, Jesus says this to them, to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. O foolish ones! And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, 
I want you to understand the implications of what Jesus himself said to these disciples. The implication is this. You may think you know the Bible. You may think you know and understand the Christian faith. But if you read the Old Testament and you don't see Jesus in the Old Testament, you don't know hardly anything truly about the Christian faith. The disciples knew the Old Testament. They knew the Old Testament better than most modern-day Christians know the Old Testament. But they did not perceive Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, the point of that is that listen to what Christ says. Jesus says, and he says this in different ways in different parts of the New Testament writings, Jesus says that all of the Old Testament writings, beginning with Moses and the prophets, all the testify concerning him. What does that mean? How is that true? Dr. Norman Geisler, who's a philosopher and a theologian and an apologist and a seminary president who's done all these things in his lifetime, has written an excellent survey of the Old Testament called A Popular Survey of the Old Testament, written in a very readable fashion. But this is what he says in the very first chapter of his book, which has the title, Christ, the Key to the Interpretation and Canonization of the Bible. His very first paragraph goes this way. What is the Bible all about? How can I understand its meaning? Why are there 66 books in the Bible? How do I know it's the Word of God? All of these questions can be answered in one word, Christ. Jesus Christ is the key to both the inspiration and the interpretation of the Bible. But Geisler doesn't stop there. Then he goes on to say, both of the Testaments are centered in Christ. The Old Testament views Christ by way of anticipation. The New Testament views him by way of realization. The Old Testament is incomplete without the New Testament. The salvation prepared for in the Old Testament was provided for by Christ in the New Testament. What was commenced in the Old Testament is completed in the Christ of the New Testament. And then he goes on in a very long paragraph showing this back and forth, back and forth. The Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament. And he concludes his long paragraph of describing the Old Testament's theme of preparation and the New Testament's theme of fulfillment in Christ this way. He says, in short, the promises of salvation in the Old Testament are brought to fruition in the presence of Christ in the New Testament. The thematic unity of both Testaments is Jesus Christ. What the Old Testament says by way of anticipation of Christ, the New Testament says by way of realization in Christ. And the point is this, the whole Bible, all of the Bible, is centered in Christ. Now, many believers hear this, but they don't necessarily see it. That is to say, they may have heard people say, Christ is all throughout the Old Testament. 
But when they read the Old Testament, they don't really find Christ in the message of Christ. They don't understand how everything that was given before, formerly, before Christ came, actually testifies to Jesus. Especially true in our day and age when the culture of America has moved far away from its Christian heritage. There was a time when, if you went to public schools, you got a lot of Bible. There was a time when most Americans had their children go to church. There was a time that by the time you reached college, you had had a lot of years of Sunday school and even vacation Bible school. There was a lot of Bible you knew. Not so today. Not so within our culture. It's fair to say that people coming to Christ today as young people have very little understanding of what the Bible is fully all about or that Christ is the theme of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. might be your case. It might be the case that if, if you were to be plucked back into some book of the Old Testament like Deuteronomy or Joshua or Ruth, and someone said, show me Christ out of this part of the Bible, you would say, well, I've read it, but Jesus doesn't appear anywhere. You see, that's what Jesus himself was concerned about. That's why he was saying to his disciples, you don't understand the Word of God until you've come to understand that all of the Word of God testifies concerning me. That's Jesus' position. And that's our position. That's the position we should adopt, but that's the position that we should actually not just know it theoretically, but really know it. And that's why through this year, the sermon series that we are beginning now, having completed the Gospel of Mark, that short little Gospel that took us only a short while to go through. We're going to go through the Old Testament, not verse by verse, not even chapter by chapter, but we're going to go through the Old Testament and, and present key episodes that we find throughout the Old Testament scriptures in which we need to understand that which is happening here and now in God's history of the Jews, God's history of the covenant, those things are testifying by way of preparation and anticipation concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to be doing. Point of departure, creation. Beginning where the Bible begins with creation. I want to take these two passages, Genesis 1-1 and Isaiah. And my intention is to give you three messages out of these verses. What's interesting is that not only do they speak to creation, but they have an interesting connection to, an interesting uh, kind of uh, exposition of the first three commandments in the Ten Commandments. Those commandments are, as you remember, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven images and bow down and worship them. And you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The passage in, in Isaiah, which is a commentary on Genesis 1-1, is also a commentary or an exposition or is grounded in or based in the concerns of the first three commandments. Today we'll think about the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. We'll see how the, the book of Isaiah 
enforces that idea and how the passage in Isaiah expounds and explains what it means to say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then we'll see how the New Testament connects the Lord Jesus Christ back to all of those things. That's what I want us to see this morning. Because I want us to recognize that as Christians, the beginning theme of the Bible is that God, the true God, the only God, is the Lord over all of creation. But as Lord over all creation, that means that for you and me, we have a calling as Christians to live for the one who created us, to give him all of the glory, but also to recognize that as Christians, our lives have an anchor, a rock, a foundation, that we are connected to the God who has created everything, and that's the solid rock, that's the solid anchor of our lives and our experience. It's what those who don't know the living God, those who don't know Christ, can never claim to have. But it's the great thing that we have when we've trusted in Jesus. The place I want to begin, though, is not with the Bible's doctrine of God, but the context and culture where Genesis 1-1 was first written down and given to the Jews, the children of Israel. You know, this happens about 14 centuries before Jesus comes. The Israelites have just been brought out of Egypt, and Moses is writing the law. Though the first book of the Bible is the beginning and the story of all of this, it was not the first thing written. Uh, the Ten Commandments, by the way, were the first things written. When the Jews come out of Egypt, God, by his own finger, writes the, the Ten Commandments, puts them on stone, Moses receives them, Moses throws and breaks the first set of them, has to be done again, and then those stones are placed, those tablets placed in the Ark of the Covenant. But during the time that they're in their wilderness wanderings, God has Moses write the story of the beginning of the world. And God has Moses explain all these things that is the background and history of the people of Israel. What's important to recognize is that the children of Israel had spent 400 years in a pagan culture. And Abraham himself, 600 years earlier, had come out of a pagan culture in Mesopotamia. And all the nations that surrounded Israel when they went into the promised land were pagan nations. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to describe these things as pagan? It, well, it's not a term of disparagement. It's not a term that we might say is, is a put-down in any way. It's a term that has a very, very long usage, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, the term pagan has meant those who have believed that reality and God and all of this looks a certain way. So let me explain what paganism is. Whether it's the paganism of Egypt, the paganism of ancient Babylonia and Mesopotamia, whether it's the paganism of all the Canaanite nations, whether it's the paganism that we find deeply embedded in Native American religions. Paganism has two large ideas. The first is their view of reality, 
what is this world all like? The concept there is continuity. Now, what do I mean by continuity? Just this. The pagan said the world is made up of nature. It's made up of us, human beings. It's made up of gods or the divine. So there are three parts to reality. Uh, that which is divine, that which is human, that which is nature. And the connection between these three is continuity. These three things are all connected. How are they connected? They're connected because they're all made of the same stuff, just showing up in, in different ways. So this means that human beings are deeply connected in continuity to nature. And it means that nature is deeply connected to what human beings are. But it also means the divine powers that exist in the heavens or in the skies or whatever, all of that is also connected to what we are and to what nature is. Another way of putting it is that you look at all the gods that all the ancients believed in and the nature of those gods was no different than the nature of human beings which was no different than the nature of nature. It was all of one stuff, so to speak. All of one substance. All of the same essence. So that the only difference between nature and us is we're a little more complex and we can move around and we can think. And the only difference between us and the gods is that, well, they live up here and we live down here and they have more power than we do. All of nature connected in terms of this continuity. This is why, we'll get into this next week, somebody could take a block of wood, just a block of wood, have a craftsman chisel out an idol of the god Baal, and as soon as that begins to look like the idol Baal, it is Baal. Because Baal in his essence was the same thing as the wood in its essence, the same thing as the worshiper in his essence. All connected. You are not unfamiliar with this at all. Because in our culture, increasingly, we have replaced the Christian understanding of reality with the pagan understanding of reality. We'll get to that in just a moment. Now, the second thing is, well, if that's what reality is, if everything is connected this way, what's a pagan understanding of God or the deity? Well, of course, many gods. Many gods. Lots of gods. But these gods all participate in the same stuff as we do in nature. So none of the gods believed in by paganism um, are infinite. None of the gods are eternal. None of the gods have lived forever. None of the gods are all-powerful. None of the gods are all-knowing. They're all-limited. They represent the forces of nature. They have far more power than you and I, but not because they're really different than you and I. And, of course, then, the worship of these gods is designed to do what? 
Well, these gods have power. These gods do certain things. These gods manipulate the forces of nature. So if we want our fields to, to grow, we have to take the god of fertility over the fields and we have to sacrifice to him and honor him and do whatever in order to tap his power into what we need. The manipulation or somehow the service to the gods is so that the gods and their power would also service us. Now, is this a concern for you today? So the phone call my wife had this week. A two-hour phone call with a man mentioned for prayer this morning. He's a recent author. He asked Julie, he asked me to read his book. So we did. We read his book. His book was a novel, one of those apocalyptic novels, Great Event Changes the World. And all of the key ideas all throughout his book were pagan all the way through. That is to say, the ideas about reality, the ideas about human beings, the ideas about nature, all were connected to this worldview called paganism all the way through. So this week when Julie had the phone conversation with him and talked to him, yes, he believes in some sort of divinity, but that divinity did not become the person Jesus. No. Jesus is a son of God, but we're all sons of God. See, any divinity that the divine possesses, everybody has that divinity. Well, what about an afterlife? Well, there might be or there might not be. Well, what about judgment and hell? There's no hell. There's no judgment. There's no wrath of God. God is only love. God is a positive energy. God is a positive force. That's paganism. The rejection of Jesus as God, but the acceptance of Jesus as a son of God, like the rest of us are sons of God, that's the culture we live in. And when Julie and I talked about this afterwards, we said, hmm, this is a great reminder. God talk in America is not the talk about the God of the Bible. God talk in American culture is more likely to be the God of paganism because that's the larger culture that we live in today. Which is why you can hear people say such things as this. One of the former presidents said this recently. Well, you know, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Meaning that he didn't have a positive opinion. More likely means he didn't have a negative opinion. But you see, that means Jesus isn't really God. Because God is the author of all the Bible. And if Jesus is God, Jesus is just as much an author of the Old Testament along with the Father and the Holy Spirit as he is the New Testament. The proper response when someone says, well, Jesus never said anything about God is to say, that's only because you think Jesus isn't God. If you understood the Bible, 
if you understood Jesus the way the Bible explains Jesus, you would understand that Jesus is the one who said everything in the Bible about that topic. Everything in the Bible about that topic was said by Jesus in conjunction with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Now, the Bible has a very distinct view about God. And that was the concern that God had to take his people and to make it clear to his people, you are not pagans. You are not to think of the world and reality the way the pagans think of it. You're to think about God and God's relationship to creation under four very important ideas. The first of these is given in Genesis 1.1. God is the creator of everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a summary statement. God has created everything. And then in Isaiah, it goes on to tell us this. Verse 26, then verse 28. God says to the Jews, lift up your eyes on high. Look at all the starry hosts. Who created all of these, God says. He says he does. He who brings them out by number, he calls each of them by name. Because of the greatness of his power and might, not one of them is missing. In verse 28, he says, Hey, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. God says that he is not part of this world. He's not continuous with this world. He's not part of this reality. He's the creator of this reality. God has created everything that is which means everything that is has a beginning, but not God. God is everlasting. God has always existed. But the world and the sky and the cosmos and the universe, it had a beginning. For God says, in the beginning, God created everything else that is. Creator, creation, distinction, difference. The universe is not continuous with God. The universe is a distinct creation of God, creation out of nothing. The second thing that we know that the Bible teaches about God also in these passages is God is the sustainer of everything. It's not just God created this world. God sustains this world. The word we have for this is the word providence. We mean by this that God providentially watches over, governs, and guides the entire world moment by moment. Look what uh, we see in Isaiah, verses 22 through 24. This is a statement about God sustaining everything that happens in human history. It is God who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Not that he did this thousands of years ago in the past, but it's what he constantly does. It's God who constantly spreads out the heavens like a curtain, like a tent to dwell in. It's God who, verse 23, brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. 
Isaiah says, God is intimately, constantly, persistently involved in everything that's happening in this world because he is the one who is sustaining all the things which take place. The Apostle Paul put it this way, Ephesians 1.11, the God who works out everything according to the counsel of his own will. The third thing, and we've mentioned this, is that God is fully different and fully distinct from his creation. This not continuity, it's distinction. It's the creator-creation distinction. That's what is said in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All of the pagan mythologies, by the way, all of them, have the creation coming out of something that was already there. The pagan gods aren't ultimate. The pagan gods are controlled by the reality that was already there when they came into existence. But all of reality was created by God. God eternal, the cosmos, the universe, the world, temporal. God infinite, the world finite. God, the one who leans on no one, the world always dependent and leaning upon God. God is distinctly different from all of his creation because God is infinite and God is eternal and God is unchangeable. Well, everything he's created is finite. Everything is temporal. Everything is changeable. And then fourthly, the fourth pillar of who God is, God is infinitely greater than his creation. The universe is unimaginably Incredibly great. Modern astronomy has made that clear to us. It's incredibly vast. God's greater than that. But it isn't the case that God is just bigger than the universe. The universe is, in fact, infinitely small compared to God because God is infinitely great. The distance between God and the universe in terms of greatness is an unbridgeable chasm of greatness. Because God is everlasting. God's power is all-powerful. God's knowledge of all things is completely unsearchable. And that's why in verse 25, God says, To whom then will you compare me? that I should be like him. If we were just bigger than the if God were just bigger than the universe, the answer would be, well we'll compare you to the universe because we got the universe it's big and you're just a little bit bigger. God says, no. Nothing in any of all of creation in any sense is a measurement of who I am. God is infinitely greater than all of his creation. Now, the implication of that is this. God is a true anchor 
for the Christian. If you know this God, that's the solid rock. Paganism gives no one a rock to stand on because all of the gods can change and all of the circumstances of nature can change and all the people in humanity can change. You can't trust another human being perfectly. You can't trust any of the gods of paganism perfectly. That's why all of paganism eventually winds up on promoting the self. The only person you can trust is the person you know the best, and that's yourself. That's paganism. The only person a Christian can trust, the only person who is trustworthy, is God, ultimately. That's the anchor of all reality, as God presents himself in Scripture. Now, what about Jesus? We haven't mentioned Jesus so far, have we? Here's what the New Testament does. The New Testament directly connects Jesus Christ to the God who created everything. The beginning of John's Gospel. In the beginning, oh, there, he's, he's quoting the first few verses, the first few words of Genesis 1. In the beginning. In the beginning, what? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John is telling us that, that the, where the Bible started, with the God created in the beginning, Jesus Christ, the Word of God, was there. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, and through Him, everything that has been created has been made. Jesus is the co-creator with his Father of everything that is. Now when you read Genesis, you have to read it thinking not just of God, but of God the Father and of God the Son creating all of this together. Now when you read in Genesis 1.26, God says, let us make man in our image you're hearing the Father and the Son talking. The Holy Spirit, too. We'll get to that. But it's the triune God. It's the God revealed in Scripture. The Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. But specifically, John's Gospel tells us, when you read about the creation, look and find Jesus. Now, Paul says the same thing. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. Paul says about Christ, For by Him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, under the earth, where their thrones, dominions, things visible, invisible, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. What's the point of the whole creation? It's for Christ. And the book of Hebrews reminds us that yes, creator and sustainer, who sustains everything? Hebrews 1.3, speaking of Christ, he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is holding the universe together right now by the word of his power. Jesus is holding you together by the word of his power. Jesus is your life.
and your light. And if you know Jesus, then this is what you know. You shall have no other gods before me, which means you shall have God as your God. And now you read that and you say, that's speaking of Jesus Christ. That's speaking of Christ my Savior. He's my God. And and I must have Him as my God. He's the center of my worship. He's the center of my life. He's the center of everything. He's the Creator. And then you realize the one who took your sin on the cross was God. You sinned against God. You sinned against the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit when you sinned in this life. And God, the Son, took on human flesh. And as Paul says, in Him the fullness of the deity dwelled bodily. And the Son of God willingly took your sin upon Himself. The infinite God, the eternal God, the unchangeable God, the God of all glory, the God of all creation, died for you. That's your faith. That's your conviction. That's your rock. And that's your anchor to reality as a believer. Don't ever think of Jesus just in New Testament terms. Think of the whole Christ and all of Scripture and who Jesus is. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for the word that tells us about your Son. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for revealing the fullness of yourself and the Father to us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for opening up our minds and our hearts to all that you are. Enable us then as we come to the table to rest in the greatness of Jesus Christ, our God. Amen. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, let me read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 29. The words of the Apostle Paul. Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon himself. This passage of Scripture is, 
is often uh, known as the, the fencing of the table. Uh, what does it mean, the fencing of the table? It means a way in which the Apostle Paul is telling the church, comprised of those who were truly believers, but also there were those who were not believers or not yet believers, of the nature of the table. That, that this particular event, as it proclaims the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, is a particular time in which Christians come together to testify about their faith by eating of the bread and drinking of the fruit of the vine. That is to say, the table proclaims the Lord's death. The table proclaims the gospel. So those who eat and drink are those who recognize themselves as those who truly believe. This is why we say children are not to partake of the Lord's table until they come of an age in which they can take that faith that they've been raised in and they can personally say, not just because of my parents, not just because of my Christian household, but now I too understand that it's my personal faith in Jesus. It's that time of personal realization, personal conversion, personal faith and repentance that is a time in which youngsters that growing up in the Christian home could come to the table. In the church at Corinth, there were very few who had grown up in the faith. So many of them were converts to the faith. Many of those had come to the gospel, come to the faith through the preaching of the gospel. But not everyone who hears, not everyone who responds, is necessarily truly born again. Paul understood that, church at Corinth. And so Paul's words were, unless you understand that this bread represents the body of Christ, the fruit of the vine, the blood of Christ, and your eating of it is a testimony that you truly believe Jesus Christ and believe in Jesus Christ, don't partake. Because to to do something that says something about you that's not true would be hypocrisy. The table isn't for people who are perfect. The table is for those who know in their imperfections that the gospel and Jesus, his body, his blood, they need that. They need his death upon the cross to cover their sin. And they've trusted in that. So the eating and the drinking is like faith. The analogy would be to faith. I eat and drink because that's what faith is. Fully resting, fully receiving, fully taking into our lives all that Jesus is. In the infinite nature of his person and the great and sufficient perfection of his atonement. So, if you're a believer, partake. If you're a child who's not yet made that credible profession of faith, don't partake. If you're not sure of your relationship to Lord Jesus, wait until you are before you come to the table. It's not for those who are perfect. It's for those who know they've trusted in Christ. Let's pray. We ask, Father, that you would set apart at this time what is ordinary, the bread and the fruit of the vine, under the sacred purposes for which Jesus first instituted this table, calling it the new covenant in his blood, 
that here we have signed and signified unto us all that Jesus has done for us in fulfillment of all the promises of the old covenant. That all of your promises are yes and amen in Christ. Sanctify the table and consecrate us as we come. In Jesus' name.